Welcome to Design Your Life, a podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. Today's guest has always had a passion for combining emerging technologies with beautiful design in order to build products and services that people love. He has now decided to combine his wealth of knowledge and technology with his love for the environment and the Australian landscape. Now the co-founder and CEO of Melbourne startup, Jaunt, a business which upcycles iconic Land Rovers into electric vehicles, allowing people to explore the beautiful and remote corners of Australia without costing the environment. Welcome to the Design Your Life podcast, Dave. Good afternoon, Vince. It's really, really cool to uh, catch up with you finally to have this podcast. And um, we met, I don't know, maybe four or five months ago. Mm. Uh, I was online looking for an alternative car. I didn't like the new cars. I was thinking about maybe I could find an old classic car and uh, electrified version of it and stumbled across Jaunt. And um, mm. it was just like, oh my God, there's somebody else out there who's got a uh, an incredible vision, a passion for Series 1, 2, 3 Land Rovers. Um, I remember having one back in London when I was uh, you know, uh, in my 20s. And um, to see that you, you know, a fully-fledged business, um, a great idea, and you're electrifying EV, uh, these wonderful vehicles, and bringing them back to life. And how did it all come about? Yeah, that's, a good, that's a good question. I, I like that you say we're a fully-fledged business. Um, that's, uh, that's nice to hear. Um, and, it's, and it is true now, probably four or five months ago, we were, we were a half-fledged business. But, um, well, you looked, very, you looked like a business. That's the illusion. <laughs> marketing and branding, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Design. Um, so I guess in it from a, from a similar position that led you to that internet search. So I have always enjoyed full driving, camping, exploring Australia, and I have a – 2015 Land Rover Defender, so it still looks like the old ones. Um, and I bought that at the time because there really wasn't any other vehicle that I wanted to buy. Mm. Um, everything else seemed over-designed might not be the right word, but just just a product created to a market rather than a product created for a purpose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I love the shape and all these things and the colour options were amazing and all these kinds of things. But Uh, And it was very practical for the stuff we wanted to do, which is I live in the inner city. I'd lived at the inner city at the time and we used it for getting out in the bush on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And it was the right car for that and definitely not probably the right car for the inner city, but it, but it did its job. And so that, you know, and I've, I've done that all my life, um, you know, got into, you know, the outdoors and done these different kinds of things, but always, you know, sort of connected to that was how can I, be more fuel efficient. I mean, driving a four-wheel drive in driving long distances is a pretty terrible thing to do for the planet. Um, and you, I think sometimes your personal effect, your very personal effect on the planet can, you can be caught up sometimes in these bigger things, but then you realise that if you're not composting, well, half your waste is vegetable scraps. Or when you're standing there at the diesel pump, filling up that that 100 litres of diesel is, is a, has a pretty big impact as well. But you kind of put it, put it aside because you're living your life and you're doing your things. But for years I'd, I'd, I'd sort of um, tried to alleviate that a little bit. I, I was a member of the Melbourne Biodiesel Club when it existed, when we were in a shed in, in a little community park, um, you know, brewing things out of waste vegetable oil and that was a great movement that, that we hoped was going to go somewhere, but, um, you know, from having a few biodiesel petrol stations around Australia to going back to nothing again. Um, so, you know, that didn't, that didn't pan out, kind of forgot about it in a way, but then had this, and I, and I don't mean to belittle what is now uh, 90% of my waking life, but it almost started as a, as a joke because my, my wife was getting, um, kind of frustrated, let's say, that I was making a mess in the garage with modifying cars and whatever. And I was like, one day when we retire and we have a bush property, I'm going to, in the back shed, convert an old Land Rover into electric. And that sort of, that almost joke planted the seed. And and then when I I sort of, you know, that, that had kind of existed and bubbled away. And in sort of early um, 2018, I... I left my career that was in sort of advertising and design and didn't really know what I was going to do, but needed the headspace to figure that out. And 
wanted something that, you know, I, I feel like I've, if I look back on my career, I've, I've spent five years on one thing and then moved on to a different thing for five years. It's always in, in sort of communication combined with kind of emerging technology. Mm-hmm. And I actually did a, I did a little exercise um, called uh, Ikigai, so a Japanese word, but basically a Venn diagram where you overlap what you're good at, what you love doing, what the world needs, what you can get paid for, these, these four or five elements. And where those Venn diagram, those circles intersect, some of those point to, oh, well, that's probably your, your job, that's a good job, but you would be unsatisfied or you'd feel very you know, satisfied in your soul over here, but you wouldn't ever get paid. Um, so trying to fit something, find something that fits. So I, you know, posted, noted my, our spare bedroom, um, with all these kinds of things that I like doing and could do. And, um, and, you know, I, I, I'm aware that potentially I was reverse engineering this a little bit, but, but had this sort of spark that maybe, um, knowing that Australia's adoption of electric vehicles was terrible for all kinds of reasons, good and good and bad, real or not, that I've been good at getting people excited about using emerging tech and doing that in a way that brings good design and good customer experience to the table. And so could I do something with no mechanical engineering or electrical engineering background, but could I bring, could I use design and emotion and storytelling to help Australia transition to electric vehicles and kind of figured that maybe, well, the answer was, I don't know, but I think it's worth a try. Mm. Um, And that was a year and a half ago. And and that's kind of led us to where we are today, with with sort of ten vehicles coming through the workshop and um, all these kinds of things, and and being pretty real and fully fledged. And do you feel energized if you kind of connected with the thing that you really believe in? Yeah, I, I I do. I was actually thinking, you know, running a startup is frustrating in all kinds of ways, yeah, it but it's, but it's a but it's a massive learning curve, and I, and I think I'm I'm aware that I. I, I get bored and I get frustrated when I get bored. And so the more that I can, the more that I can sort of aim for, the, the, the happier I am mm-hmm. and with a, with a balance to that as well. But I realise, you know, sometimes I'm, you know, spending um, a day in the workshop working with my hands and then I'm on an iPad sketching prototype designs or doing stuff in 3D and then jumping into a, a spreadsheet and giving a financial presentation. Um, I it's using all of my brain that I have to give. And I think that that is all we can ask for in our work, you know, and that, that having some control over the direction and, and feeling like you're doing something valuable. That's interesting. Going back to your career, was it, is it, was it in digital as well? Mm, mm. Um, did you feel at the time that, that clients allowed you to do that as well or were they restraining your complete freedom to solve the solution? Solve that. I was going to say pollution. Yeah, yeah. Solve the pollution. Solve pollution. Um, I would, I would like. I think that the 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 role of creative and design is often it, it is you are there to bring the vision and and based on you know facts and strategy and all these things, but then to have that vision and and surround yourself with with your team, the client, the customers, and bring everyone on that journey. And yeah. I, I don't think I ever really. I always saw it as if, if there was a failure to convince a client to do something that we thought was the best thing to do, that's our fault. And I know that in my career, I convinced some people and some companies to do some pretty crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, most of the time it worked, I'd like to think. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I, don't, I never felt restricted in, in that sense. I think that, that part of the um, – I think part of my frustration obviously was – well, not obviously, but but for me, and I think maybe this is this is part of sometimes working in in digital is that you're you're creating a platform that has a very long lifespan, mm-hmm. and it's not just a campaign idea that lives for a moment and is out in the world and is fully fledged in that moment, and then it is time for a new campaign. And but you're creating the foundation for something, and you want to see it through. Mm. But when you're jumping between projects and you sort of create something that you are building to have a five or a 10 year lifespan, yeah. then you have to let that go yeah. and move on to something else. And, and I think, I don't know, there's a little bit of a loss in that, right? You're that, that is only just the beginning of that yeah, project. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, obviously this is now your project. Mm. Um, what is the, the bigger ambition, the longer kind of plan? 
yeah. Um, we were asked that the other the other day by a uh, potential investor, and I realised that I'd been thinking too deeply about you know this one little problem we were having with rivets and paintwork. Short and term. Like, yeah. Okay, okay, look up um, <laughs> and think about these these bigger things. But this was started with a with a, a mission to do something long term, and and that really was just can we get Australians excited about electric vehicles? Can we um, can we make that that transition? So. You know, and and bring you know. So there's there's a few problems that we'd like to think that we're that we're solving or starting to solve, and, and a big one of those is transport in, in rural and regional Australia. And you know, for there is no, for all intents and purposes, public transport sucks all across Australia. It's particularly bad. You know, Melbourne and Sydney. Sure, we can complain about it, but it's still pretty amazing compared to what you get in in most of the rest of the country. And so private vehicles are one of the few ways to get around and rental vehicles are one of the few ways to do that if you haven't driven your own car there or you don't own a car. But even in our tourist hotspots, we have very limited transport options. So we got an email from a um, from someone in the Blue Mountains and said who, who works for like the Blue Mountains Heritage Trust sort of running their tourism out there. They said, we get thousands of people coming into Katoomba Station every day expecting to see the Blue Mountains. They get out at the station. What are they meant to do? There's no rental cars available. There's buses, but they only go to the other towns. There's just nothing to do. And that's the symbolic of so many places in Australia that if you don't arrive by car, what do you do? Yeah, it's hard. So so Jaunt was kind of created with with the idea of, of two things. Can we build electric vehicles that are sort of desirable, that are that you know Australians see and go, oh, God, I want to drive that. That's cool and not in a expensive $200,000 sedan way like a Tesla or a futuristic catchback way, but something that really fits into the Australian kind of psyche. Can we create something that's approachable, that's super, super easy to use? Um, And and we'd we'd sort of almost flippantly call that a single-use car because it's throwing away all that complexity that that they've put into modern cars to bring value to that purchase. Mm -hmm. We're trying to give you a singular experience. And and can we create something that – that, that then is also affordable. That that means that maybe you aren't in a position to buy one, but maybe you don't need to because transport usage is changing. The way that you travel to locations is changing. We are not trying to create a system where you have to have a car from, you know, pick it up at an airport, return it to an airport on your holiday, but only really use that car one day because you're kind of staying in your beach house. Mm-hmm. So how do we – can we produce cars, both sell them – but also, and some of those sales to tourism venues that we can work with to to say that look, hey, come and come and hire one of these vehicles for half a day or a day, drive for the first time an electric vehicle and have an awesome time doing it, and in something that is perfectly designed for you know back roads in Australia and and you know most of our sort of terrible transport. So, so you'd make the money from the conversion selling the vehicle to people and leasing or renting yeah yeah and, so and how many would, would that become i mean obviously it's probably I guess you have no idea how many people would want to yeah, buy yeah. one um but the rental part of it um across australia do you see that being quite a substantial business yeah we we hope so um and i like to think that from a um just from a from a where i'd like to see see jaunt existing so the we see that, you know, in the early days of a, of a company, you know, like building one vehicle and having that rented is not going to run the company. But longer term, we sort of have two, I guess, revenue streams and that, that selling a vehicle and making a margin on, on that, um, that gets us going. Um, once we have a certain number of vehicles out there in the world that are being rented out, then that sort of 10% rental clip, mm-hmm. that starts to build and build and build. And that gives us an ability to scale like a startup rather than someone producing a singular widget, like building and selling cars is a very linear graph. But once you get a vehicle out into the world, you can start making sort of an exponential return on that. Where do you see the, because I was reading the data that said something like 0.2% of cars in Australia are electric, right? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, and, on, and only yeah. 800 charging stations uh, across Australia. Oh, it's that, probably changing by the day, I would imagine. Yeah, that's changing by the day. So you hear 800 um, charging stations. There's there's definitely more and there's more and more every day. And, and of course, you that's not counting every single PowerPoint on everyone's wall um, that can happily charge your yeah, car. And, and, you know, most people who own an electric car don't use charging points because their car's fully charged every morning when they get okay. into it. Yeah. Um, but there's about 6,000 petrol stations, something like that. So, you know, hey, it's not – 
that compared to the 0.2% of cars, it's yeah. not that far behind. So it's, it's 0.2% now, but it must be going to become along oh, fast. So, so that any stats basically uh, released before last month are a little bit out because that was September, October was when the model Tesla Model 3 landed in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they delivered maybe two and a half thousand um, in that period, and so that that just drastically increased the the percentage. But still, whatever the percentage it is, it, it's one of the worst in the developed world. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? It's it's nuts. There's an there's an app, a great app called um, PlugShare, which is worldwide. It's a website. It's an app. Um, worldwide charging point locations. Mm. Um, if you open it up and look in Australia, you are swamped. There's little pins everywhere and that includes everything from like tesla superchargers through to a guy in fitzroy crossing who gives access to his three-phase point in his back shed (laughs) um so all over the place and all of them reviewed the the ev community super passionate and you look at that and you think oh there's so many charge points like i can drive through the middle of australia i can get everywhere and then you swipe over to new zealand and you basically can't see the country for the amount of charge points there are uh, and then you look at, you know, obviously the United States and Europe and those kind of places that it's, it's everywhere. It's not, a, it's not even a consideration anymore. So we're, we're getting there. I mean, electric cars isn't a new thing, is it? I mean, they've been around for 50 years or more. Oh, so there was, there's always a great photo. I think it comes up like every two months in, my, in all my social media feeds are very electric car biased. But it always comes up this photo and it's like, um, you know, Roberta Smith charging her electric car in 1912 in Melbourne kind of thing. Because it's a really, really simple tech, right? As soon as you had batteries, you could have electric cars. There's one moving part in electric motor. So what happened? We didn't go that route. Big oil, right? Big oil happened. Really? And, you know, if you can control – if you can have a system where you have much more control of – the distribution, then that you can make a lot of money out of that. And and you know, the particularly in the early days, battery tech wasn't great. Um, safety wasn't great. I mean safety of safety of internal combustion engines wasn't great either. But there is nothing unfortunately, there is nothing better than petrol, diesel, that kind of liquid for energy density, for the power that you can get out of a certain amount of space and weight, fossil fuels are incredible. Um, and so when you when you've got the attitude that or even the understanding back then that this is an infinite resource. Well, hey, it makes things really easy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting we took that route. I mean, what would the world have looked like if we'd gone electric from 1912? I know, I know. And I, and I think it's, it's interesting to imagine where there's a lot of talk around hydrogen as a fuel. And I think, you know, personally, you know, I'm not, I'm not setting policy or anything like that, but personally, as like an old hippie, the idea of... <laughs> um, the idea of being able to get electricity from a solar panel on your roof, put it into the vehicle that you're using, store it there and, and use it immediately with no other connection with, from an infinite resource and, and very, very efficiently is so much better than, you know, as much as hydrogen is, is an incredible tech, it's still – electricity is used to create it. It's, it's created at a refinery. It's stored. It's transported. It's stored again at wherever the – you're getting, you know, the hydrogen fuel station. Then you're bringing it back to your car. It's converted from hydrogen to electricity again, and then that's powering your car. So it's another way of, of course, if you're a big petrochemical company, of course you would want, you know, hydrogen is great because it fits into your existing model of uh, refinement, distribution, storage, and and sale at, at petrol stations. But mm. to me, the idea that you can plug your car or your scooter or your bike into your wall and you're getting power from the sun is a lot simpler and a lot nicer. Yeah. Democratizes transport. So it's interesting also the same time as we're moving towards more electric vehicles, we're also moving towards time where we might not be driving these vehicles. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you feel about that? Because obviously what you're proposing is something which is very much about being mm-hmm. in control and um, the experience of driving in na- amongst nature is yes. you don't want to be driven around, do you, in that particular vehicle anyways? That's right. And, and we, we have sometimes referred to ourselves in a, in a way as like we're competing with horse rides as much as we're competing with car rental. Yeah, that's interesting. Because we, in a way, like if you go, well, okay, horse rides now are, you know, Transport of the of the nineteenth century would become the hobby thing of the twentieth century. Does steering your own car become the hobby activity of the twenty first mm. century? Mm-hmm. I think it probably does, right? I, I don't want to really drive on the freeway 
in in a commute. You know, it's a lot nicer if if the robots can do that for me safer and safer and all these kinds of nice things. But there's a but there's a there's a fun aspect obviously to driving a car, and also there's a there's an ability for you know in what situations can an autonomous vehicle operate. And while ninety percent of the Australian population is living in urban areas or whatever it is, and most of our transport is happening on something where an autonomous vehicle could operate, most of our roads aren't that. And it's going to be a very very long time before an autonomous vehicle is able to, you know, navigate that back way to the to the beach or, you know, around a vineyard or whatever it might be. So you joked about being a hippie. Mm. You haven't got long hair, but I understand you like camping and all that. So um I think there's there's a certain amount of nostalgia with obviously using a uh, re, a reusing a vehicle, mm. uh, specifically the beautiful shaped from the uh, series, what do you call it, series one, two, three, or whatever, yeah. Land Rovers, um, kind of classic in their in their look of farm vehicle, I guess originally, and safari vehicles, mm. and if you ask a kid to draw a car or a truck, they probably draw that shape, yeah. Um, Made out of aluminium, which again was way ahead of its time. Because mm. I mean, they're how far back they go? Like sixties, fifties? No, 40, 48. And they're made of aluminium then. So they were made out of aluminium because they oh, you the know, they drew it up, and then they were like, "We could, we could make a go. Of this, this would work as a tractor and whatever." And they went to the government because you kind of had to at the time to to say, "Look, we, if you want to start a car, like the government's rationing all materials, mm. and like we want to make a new car. We think it's going to be great." And the government's like, "Well, we just don't have enough steel." If you make it out of aluminium, you're allowed to make it. And so at the time, that was a great wow. and cheap and available material. Longer term, it became more expensive. But it meant that all these old Land Rovers that got put in back sheds in the 70s or 80s are still sitting there and they haven't rusted. And so it makes it viable for us to reuse them and upcycle them because if you're restoring an old car, most old cars, all the work is filling rust holes in the bodywork. Presume they're lighter too, aren't they? And they're very yeah, they're a lot lighter, you know. And and every every panel is bolted together. Every every part of that car, except for sort of the chassis, you can lift up um, yourself, and that makes things dramatically different. So for us, with a with a short wheelbase version, so a cute little Jeep looking thing, that full of batteries. So with with forty four kilowatt hours of batteries, which is more than a new uh, Nissan Leaf, it weighs less than a new Nissan Leaf. Mm. So now. I have to say that the Nissan Leaf has a lot of nice things like sound insulation and airbags and all these other kind of comfort and, and comfort, right? <laughs> that doesn't it does does weigh a little bit, yeah. Um, but where I guess the idea of you know four wheel drives look heavy, but they aren't necessarily, and and that shape of that Land Rover I think was really was for us a huge part of it because whether you call it whether you see it and you call it a Jeep or a Land Cruiser or a Land Rover. While that might hurt my heart a little bit as a you know Land Rover yeah. nerd, that it shouldn't matter to you it, because it just looks like what a four wheel drive should look like, yep. and in a way that somehow is both and and perhaps it is just kind of forties, fifties, sixties British design that it's not. It both looks tough, but it also looks cute, and so it doesn't. It looks capable, but not intimidating. Mm. In the way that some four-wheel drives can easily just get, look like big scary trucks, this is 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 cool for for everyone, no matter what your persuasion. I think, um, and I think everyone from seeing everyone's reaction when we, you know you show a photo of what we're building, everyone wants to drive it. And there's an interesting story, wasn't there, around why the shape didn't change since the 40s to 2015. Or sixteen? Yeah, when, when I, they, when they stopped it, didn't they? Two, two sixteen. Two sixteen. January two sixteen. Just was like, the last oh time. my god, how could they stop it after all these years? Um, yeah. <laughs> and the price, obviously, the latest later ones went skyrocketed because yeah. obviously the people still wanted them. Mm, mm. Um, what happened? What? What? Why did that shape not change? Everything about Land Rover or series Land Rovers Defenders uh, is really just explained by it, it's constantly. Unless you absolutely needed to do it, unless it was broken, don't fix it. And if it was broken, just add another part to it. So while there is defined years of like this is the Series 2 and this is the Series 3 and this is the one, like there's eras of, of Land Rovers, the change is not as defined as that because there's a factory with a whole bunch of parts and if they made a lot too many parts in 1973, they're still using those parts in 1985. But that's pretty rare, isn't it? It's but, it's pretty rare, and it and it's a it's because it's a hand built 
vehicle. Um, even up to 2015, there was two robots working in the factory and the rest was done by hand. And those robots were just kind of lifting some heavy things. So it's a, it's a you know, the, the very early ones, the early, late 40s, early 50s, the Series 1s, they were a bit different. And then they sort of, they sold enough, they realised it was successful, they brought some designers in, they added a few more curves and then it kind of stayed that way. And, and, and partly it stayed that way because they didn't really have any money. So British car industries through the 60s, 70s, 80s was in a pretty bad state. While they were selling a lot of Land Rovers and Range Rovers, in the strange sort of homogenisation that happened where so many British car companies sort of amalgamated into just a couple of holding companies, Land Rover and Range Rover were propping up the rest of the industry. There was no money to innovate, no money to change anything. Oh, the, you know, the law in Australia says we've got to you know, change this or the law in Europe says we've got to change this do the bare minimum that we yeah. can so that we're still still based on the same you know same standard dimensions and that's been incredible for us because it means we've got 60 years of car that is all basically exactly the same underneath yeah and, and i guess parts everywhere is it parts, parts everywhere and so these vehicles just kept running and because the bodies didn't corrode they were still useful and they and because it was all done in small hand built panels rather than more traditional cars it's like there's a frame you know older cars there's a big frame underneath and then the body is almost one giant piece and then as you got to newer cars they're a singular like unibody and you'll see if you imagine a a car but as it's in the factory it looks like a car land rovers just look like a bunch of bits of sheet metal um that are kind of you know as big as an a3 bit of paper bolted together yeah but that means that anyone can can work on them and anyone can fix them quite easily and keep them going yeah, there's been a lot of copycats uh, mm. since then, hasn't there? Mm. Um, I don't know if the Toyota original Land Cruiser was a copycat. Everything was kind of a copy of the World War Two Jeep out of America. Yeah, so everyone got exposed to that. There was a big, you know, that was a government request. It's got to meet all these requirements. It's right. got to be light and four-wheel drive and all this stuff. Um, and then so the, the world saw that and, and a lot of people used it and then came back to various countries and, and went, oh, we, why don't we have a vehicle that can do that, can kind of be a tractor, can kind of be a car, all that kind of stuff. I think that the the name Jaunt is nostalgic, but also beautiful. It's a beautiful name. How did you come across that? Yeah, we, you know, it's a, it's an important thing, right? And we we wanted to be one of the goals for us was that we knew that our strength and background was in was in brand and communication, and that we. If, if anything, we needed to create something that, that pulled on those heartstrings and, and resonated in a way that, you know, a, a pun based on electric electricity just doesn't. And, and if you look at most car brand names, they're either a guy's name or a town or a, a region's name, you know. BMW is just, what is it, Bavarian Motor Works or something. Um, you know, Toyota is a place or a guy, you know. like So there's, there's all these... All these things, General Motors, you couldn't think of a more generic name than that, right? So, um, so Land Rover. Yeah, right. So we wanted to make sure that we had a name that spoke to the experience that we wanted to create, not the technology, because that's what most people are in it for, right? Not the engineering. We want to create a product that you should, like most people do today, totally forget about the engineering. Um, I don't care about the processor in my iPhone. I just care that it's a great great fun experience so that was a key driver um we also you know that was that was partly informed by the fact that because we're creating a rental element long long term if we can create a rental car brand that's actually cool Mm -hmm. that's very very unique and very valuable um so within that it was like i kind of looked at it and went you know and i've done a few naming named a few things and you know promotions or products and I really wanted something that was actually a couple of syllables and was rounder and yeah. jaunt doesn't fit any of that. Yeah. So jaunt was actually an original, one of the first words I thought of, but I put it aside because I felt it was too pointy, if that makes sense. And I thought that, you know, if you say it with a really strong Australian accent, it's just kind of like jaunt and it's just a bit harsh. So I did all these mind maps and we went in all these different directions around the name um, but came back to it. Because it's yeah, just it's just genius. right, and it and I think it, it's genius. You know, the original definition is is a short journey for pleasure, yeah. and and it was it was sort of you know the definition would say it's sort of maybe evolved in the sort of seventeenth century 
about horse rides, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what do we want to be? We want to be a short journey for pleasure. Um, it's, it's not a, a word that's commonly used today, is it? It's not at all. And and it's we found, you know, one of the things was, you know, trying to throw out we when we were developing the name, we we had a few other contenders and we threw them out to um, you know, spoke about them to different different people of different demographics, different ages. Jaunt was really interesting because if I spoke to my mum about it, she was like, oh, yeah, that's great. And now she knows the definition of it. When I spoke to um, a colleague in his early 20s, he was like, yeah, it sounds cool. Um, my only concern is that you, it's just a bit wanky because it's just another <laughs> company that's co-opted some word. And I was like, do you know what it means though? Oh, no. And he's like, no, I have no idea what it means. It just yeah. sounds interesting. And I was like, it means this. And he's like, oh, oh okay, well then – then it's great. Yeah. And and then what's interesting, you know, as we've been called Jaunt for the last sort of 18 months, we have a, obviously a Google keyword search alert on it and all we get is results from about us, uh, results from a now defunct virtual reality camera system uh, and British tabloids because they're always talking about so-and-so takes a jaunt to the continent with their mistress um, so it's used it's used in like tabloid press to be a kind of um, a weird like saucy holiday or something. Um, otherwise, it's used by us. So did you see this as being something that could go internationally? I, I'd hope so. Um, I mean, we you know we are obviously targeting or well not targeting, but we knew where we need to be have an awareness to an international audience as something that is a both both if we're running. Tourism in Australia. Um, we want an international audience to be using that. We wanted to see this as a, you know, Australia is one of the last seen as one of the last few wildernesses that are well, it's wilderness that's safe um, for the most part, uh, and has this incredible idea of overlanding and safari as well as, as obviously Africa and sort of South America. So we're focusing on an international audience in that way. But we also, you know, we get inquiries every second day from international customers and. Um, one of the reasons for that is that, you know, one of the and one of the reasons for using these Land Rovers is back in the '60s, Australia was buying half the Land Rovers ever produced um, for every farm. When it was the only four-wheel drive, you know, we we're part of the Commonwealth, right? Yeah. So the every farm's getting one. Every major government department, the Snowy River, you know, dam was built with these vehicles. So there was just so many. Well, the army had them. the yeah. army had them, and the army had them until very very recently. So. Almost every four-wheel drive for, for a good 20 years, 30 years, was a Land Rover. Mm. And there's so many here. And a dry climate means, you know, that the few steel bits that are on them haven't rusted that much, all these kinds of things. So there is a there is definitely an international appetite and there's an international appetite for, I guess, you know, what, what we're now doing, which is, you know, electrifying them and modernising them and creating a few other elements. Well, it kind of leads me to the next question around the kind of the circular economy, mm. uh, which is obviously – top of mind it's in, in the papers and everyone's talking about it uh, around the world now, how, how the importance of that and understanding that. This is not just creating another new car. Mm. It's taking something that's already existed, like you say, they're in, found in farm fields, kind of abandoned and uh, disused and all that. I think it's, again, a genius idea, taking something that's just sitting there, not rotting, because mm. <laughs> they don't rot. Um, but I mean, what what was the future for those cars? Otherwise, they're just going to be like left there forever, I guess. Yeah, look, they they some of them are uh, scrapped, uh, and you see, you know, you still see them heaps of them going to junkyards. So there's, there's a lot of work in, in bringing one back to life. Uh, a lot go into sort of collections. Where everyone loves the shape, and you know, you can kind of put it there in your in your garage and look at it and not drive it very much because it's super unreliable. Um, but but as a as a bigger picture, you know, like hundred thousand tons of waste every year in Australia is going to landfill from cars, uh, what they'd call end of life. So just and that's you know plastics and metal and you know a lot a lot can be recycled. The, the the steel and the aluminium and all those things can be recycled. But it's still that's not you know that's that's not completely sustainable either. So being able to reuse as much as possible. Um, you know, we, we're aware that, of course, we're using batteries and we're using new chemist, you know, new materials for that. Um, we try and use, you know, we're using uh, salvaged Tesla batteries as well for that. So trying to use as many recycled and upcycled components as we possibly can. Um, the challenge the challenge for us, though, is, you know, 
that costs a lot more than pulling a new part off the shelf um, that's ready to go. So one of our challenges has been to, and we've got a lot of spreadsheets that feed into this, but but if you're a hobbyist who's uh, restoring an old car in your backyard, time is free. Um, time is what you're doing it for. That's that's the purpose of it is spending time doing fun stuff. Parts then are the, the, the cost. And so you try and spend more time restoring things. For us, it's kind of the other way around. Labor is we've got to pay our staff. We've got to pay our mechanics and our craftsmen. So that cost is expensive and it is cheaper often. And one of the beauties of old Land Rovers is there's thousands of parts available. It can be cheaper to, you know, pull a part off a shelf. And, you know, a Land Rover door is about 200 bucks. And to sand back the paint and get it ready and reprime it and get it ready to that condition again is more than almost more than $200 of labor. So where do you from a business point of view where do you draw the line and and how do you balance out those principles of trying to upcycle as much as you can and recycle as much as you can while still making a an affordable product. And how do you apply that, apply that to the rest of your business around the um you know around your core values around the the being sustainable across everything that you do? I wish or don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, right. That's and I hesitate because I I'm a bit ashamed at some of the stuff that we do at the moment and that we have to do as a I have to do is not the right word that we do do as a manufacturing startup because there's so many things that don't have an answer or don't have a feasible answer just yet. And so the first time we disassembled uh for first vehicle that we bought to to um, you know, convert, pull it all apart. And we've got to, you know, to do that, you want to get rid of all the grease and the oil and the stuff. What do you do? Where do you do that? And where does all that stuff go when you're pressure washing it? And so we're in an industrial area that's been an industrial area since the 50s, lots of mechanics. And I walked around and asked all the guys, what do you do when you're cleaning off an engine, when you're replacing an engine, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're like, Oh, we just Here's that annoying guy again. Yeah, yeah. Why well, is this guy? This guy's asking all these questions. We take it out into the gutter and we yeah. hose it down. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, well, of course you do. Because um, why wouldn't you? Because you're not thinking about it that much. But I also know that like Merry Creek, like this little creek in north northern Melbourne, is just two blocks away. Like it's not... It's not an abstract concept that that stormwater is going into a creek. Like yeah. I can like literally see the creek. Um and so those kinds of things around what you do with um, what you're doing with chemicals, how you're treating them, how many you use, you know, the, there's, we, we'd spent the last hundred years developing amazingly effective chemicals to do certain tasks that are an absolute nightmare for the world. Yeah. And so trying to find alternatives that, that are a lot, and it's starting to come, come on board but there's a lot of things that we've had to develop and go, we just, we just can't, we can't run this business while using this product or wasting this much stuff. So constantly trying to think how we, how we have best practice on that. And the, you know, the amount, amount of energy we use and all these kinds of things. And so as we figure out our process, as we scale into next year and as we sort of construct our own facilities, making sure or trying as hard as we can to be carbon neutral, minimise, um, you know, chemicals that we use, even even the paint that we use, you know, like there's there's so many things that, that create noxious fumes and, and then there is starting to be alternatives. But it's hard when you're, you know, it's hard when you're not BMW who can build a whole, you know, carbon neutral factory to produce their electric vehicles. Mm. And when you're rebuilding these cars, you're stripping them right down to the bare metal, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you are totally... Totally. Starting from scratch. So, so like we. It, why you don't have to do that, do you? Because you could just rip the engine out, put an electric one in. You're a bit yeah. of a purist, I guess. You want to make it. I, I guess so. I, I think that it, it's there's a couple of reasons. And one is that we wouldn't want when you when you're spending, you know, electrification of any car is is not cheap. A motor is and a controller and stuff is like ten grand, and then batteries are ten grand to fifty grand, depending on the amount of batteries you want. So that's a lot of money to put in a car to then think, oh, if only we'd pulled it apart a bit more and replaced this $2 bearing, right, that you know that you don't want it to be let down by those things. You want it to feel like the value that, you, you know, the cost of the car. So there's that aspect. You, the didn't, other- you didn't feel like once you started to work on them, go <laughs> discover all these things that were wrong or missing or whatever. 
Did not stress you out? Uh, I guess we started out with the, with the idea that every car will be terrible in its own way. Mm. What's that? Is that that? What's that yeah. quote? Every family, unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, whatever yeah. it is. Um, but yeah, every old Land Rover is terrible in its own way. So we start with a an idea of, you know, we, we pay a certain amount for them, maybe, you know, five to ten grand for one. But we know that that comes with its own baggage that is worth a certain amount of money. Now, it'll always be different, but it's always terrible in roughly this, you know, in roughly a way of equal value. So I guess we very much started from the beginning thinking and almost, you know, obsessing about process and obsessing about process because we don't see ourselves as a, as a bespoke car restoration service but as a new kind of factory around recycling vehicles. Mm-hmm. So so thinking about it literally almost from the opposite way rather than here's an old vehicle, let's make it the best we can be, mm-hmm. start with the idea that maybe we have to buy every single part new, build a new vehicle, how can an old vehicle come along and be a great collection of parts and stories that feeds into that and makes that a more viable option. So so the reason for taking everything apart is that, you know, I think if you've ever worked on any, I mean, you, you do any kind of work or repair and and you you kind of think and you're like, I'll just I'll just tweak this bit and I won't bother undoing this the back or the side or this these bolts. I'll just work around that. And eventually you go, oh, if I just spent a bit more time in the setup, it would have been easier long term. So I guess for us it's that idea that it's a whole lot easier to repaint a chassis so the frame of the car, if there's nothing attached to it. And it's very, very easy to just go hard at a car and pull everything off, mm-hmm. store it correctly, and then start again and start again in a methodical process, treating it like you're really building it again, that you are in that factory. And that gives us an opportunity to use, to not, again, not not be like a hobbyist restorer, um, but to do things more efficiently. And And to that point... Metric nuts and bolts, um, high tensile, stronger, lighter, better in so many ways um, that, you know, compatible with the power tools we use, all these kinds of things that we can, we are not, when we're modifying these cars so dramatically, putting electric motor in, we are not beholden to the best of 1960s technology. We can use the best of 21st century advanced technology. And so that, that has a lot of things that for most people you either don't notice or you only notice because it works better or nicer. Um, things like, you know, auto-cancelling uh, indicators, you know, things that you expect. So there's elements of approachability, but there's also elements of, you know, strength, um, durability, sustainability, all these kinds of things that go into the reasons that we want to rebuild them completely. And last time I spoke to you, you were still building the first one. Have you mm. built, is it finished yet? No. <laughs> you still haven't um, driven one. Uh, no, no, I will have driven one, but not one of ours. So, so I guess the so the the our first couple of vehicles are very very close, and so finished. Will it ever be? Will it ever be finished? Yes, I think it will be finished. <laughs> um, so it, it it's it's very much in all the you know batteries, motor, everything's there and connected. It's just still on a hoist, um, and has some final uh, aesthetic elements to go. Um, we're not inventing new batteries or motors or any of that kind of tech. Uh, so I have driven vehicles using exactly the same motors and batteries as ours in old Beetles, uh, in old Land Rovers. There's mm. one guy in Australia who's – well, there's two electric Land Rovers in Australia as far as I know, um, and I've driven one of them. Um, so we know that it works and we know what it's like. What we've always been – we thought we could bring to the table was – experience like user experience customer experience design and so because so many electric vehicle startups in australia all maybe electric vehicles and startups in australia for, for passenger cars have been very very engineering driven i think they've, they've unfortunately been the wrong time mm. tesla has made electric vehicles cool charge points are there so many other manufacturers now on the market the timing is right but the other thing is that when you're, you know, the early days of any new technology is is whether it's a, an art medium um, or, a, or a transport medium, the early days are very engineering-led and require early adopters who understand the tech because even the way that it's like 
oh, get in and just dial this and turn this on and dial the regen braking. And instead of being a gauge for your battery that's just a you know empty full, it's talks about kilowatt hours or amp hours, all these kind of things that are just barriers for most people um, to use it. How do we bring a layer of you know just good design and simplicity and yeah. clarity to the whole thing? Well, I was going to just talk about the, your involvement with you know, local community members who want to get on board with the conversion kits and training, mm-hmm. et cetera. You also mentioned previously uh, another conversation around the Bendigo Tech School, uh, working with students, et cetera. Is that still happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so we, from the very beginning, you know, we we knew that, yes, there's electric vehicle stuff and there's some, you know, very modern stuff that goes into these, but the core skills of, you know, automotive, manufacturer and maintenance and repair are everywhere in Australia and you know to, and you know there's there's thousands of people with incredibly world class skills now that don't have jobs or aren't working in their preferred jobs because all our manufacturing closed down so we know the skills are out there and we always felt that is if there's a way to scale and have more jaunt vehicles be created without having to have a huge huge singular facility then that can benefit not only us but it can benefit the communities and the areas of the country that we feel like we're trading off if we're building a vehicle to explore the bush we should be supporting the bush supporting the communities around that bush so how can we long term create something that can be produced and worked on in a very distributed model of manufacturing um which which you know i guess large automotive companies are doing you know like but it's just giant company over here makes the shocks and giant yeah, company yeah. over there makes the bolts. But we can do that at a, at a, a more personal scale. Um, so we're already doing it in a sense and we've got you know gearboxes being restored over here and elements and all different kinds of parts coming together from around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we hope to do is both work with and, and really I think it'll start with trade training um, and advanced manufacturing institutes. So... You mentioned the Bendigo Tech School. So that's in Victoria. There's a group of – they're kind of – they're sort of an an aside to high school. So it's it's about learning, you know, design thinking, advanced manufacturing, all these kinds of things, and they have an electric vehicle program. So they're working with students in, you know, year 7 through to 12 um, on manufacturing process and advanced manufacturing, all these kinds of things. So they're looking at working with us to build – our vehicles as part of that program. And those conversations also led into, uh, we've been talking with, uh, in down in Victoria, a place called Kangan Institute is the main training body for automobile apprentices from all the, for all the, tra- for all the um, manufacturers and all the workshops. And talking with them, at the moment, if you, you know, you spend most of your time learning, you know, petrol and diesel engines, mm. and there is an electric vehicle component and there's kind of a mule of a car. It's kind of got the parts, but it isn't really anything that you in that program sort of build up and tear down. Mm. Now we, we've been in discussions with them and it's like, well, what's way more rewarding is if you build a car that actually gets out into the world. Mm. So our, you know, we are vastly less complex than a modern, uh, um, not a modern, we're a modern electric vehicle too, but a, a major manufacturer's electric vehicle. Very, very simple, very, very easy to work on. Um, and so something that can hopefully you know, while it's a, it's a combination of traditional hand skills and there's a lot of modern manufacturing, advanced manufacturing techniques in our vehicles too. So that fits really well in a curriculum of training. It fits really well in, in I think, uh, I don't know, it, it's, a, it's a nice way of working uh, as well. It's, it's, it's a personal scale, but it's also using, you know, high-tech components, not just sort of hammers and welders. What I was thinking too is, is back in London when I had my 1971 Land Rover, uh, I took the roof off once and never put it back on. I remember driving around in snow and rain, and but it was cool. <laughs> I loved it. But equally, I was really bad at checking the oil, checking the brake fluid, et cetera. So it was constantly breaking down. Yep. Are these going to be breaking down? I mean, would the NRMA know what to do if you had some kind of, you pulled you yeah. up, you know, something happened on the, on the side of the road? Yeah. Uh, or is it, is it Tesla really the, the motor or the battery that's going to be straightforward? So... Yeah, there's uh, there's not two answers. We there's one add, answer to that. The answer is they will break down, and they'll break down because of the original Land Rover stuff, uh, the old car stuff. Um, electric motors and batteries are 
yeah, we'll have some teething issues in our first prototypes, but it's a power drill, you know, scaled up. It's it's very, very simple. It's got one moving part. Mm-hmm. So, but we are going to have, um, you know, we have still have a, a gearbox full of oil. We still have brake fluid. We still have wiper fluid. We still have all these things that, um, although where any of those critical, you know, uh, going, stopping, steering are the critical functions of any car. And mm. so making sure that we don't take – there's no corners cut in any of that. It's not like, oh, maybe this, you know, this brake system could could make it. It's like, no, we replace all those. But that's not to say that it is the most – you know, it is still a replacement and the best replacement that we can find, but a replacement that fits into a 1960s, 70s system. And those aren't inherently as reliable as some of the modern, um, you know, modern vehicles. So there's still maintenance, and and we're we're very conscious of that. And and people, customers ask us, well, what do we do? What do we do for servicing? And so it's a tricky answer because on one hand, it's like, well, the EV part doesn't need anything special. If you've got a mechanic down the road, he'll be able to do all the servicing of the traditional mm. mechanical elements of the car. It's a very simple vehicle. But that's you know that's not necessarily what you. You don't want – that's not a great answer. So we've been really lucky to be, um, you know, to have a lot of interest from the Australian automotive industry, um, and including from uh, my car, which is the rebranded Kmart Tire and Auto. And they, they have about 250, 300 company-owned stores around the country, and we're working with them to, to have our sort of technical documentation available on their systems so that you can basically drive your join into any – any one of their stores and they'll know basically giving us a service department um, around the country. So they'll have our specs. They'll know down to every bolt um, and every fuse what our vehicles contain and obviously can do their, their normal stuff. And it's great for them because they get to talk about supporting electric vehicles because that is a major transition in the industry is that automotive dealers make so much of their income from servicing and we have a whole service industry of mechanics that's built on servicing unreliable and, well, some some cases unreliable, but definitely even modern engines need a lot of maintenance. That all goes away with electric vehicles. Um, and so there's going to be some big transitions in that area yeah, too. That's incredible. What are the key tips you could give to uh, listeners around lowering their impact on the environment apart from getting one of your vehicles? Oh. I, I don't, yeah. Do you have any ideas? I, I have some ideas. I'm, I'm definitely not the best person to talk to about that. I, I mean, you know, I guess I go to, you know, talks and read articles of people who are uh, doing some incredible things in that area. I guess that I'm – what this has made me – working on this project has made me very, very aware of, of transport emissions and emissions both in carbon and in heat um, and, you know, day like, day like today, like it's 37 or something outside mm-hmm. – you feel the heat when a car goes past. And, and not that, you know, all the cars in Sydney still aren't really, you know, making a dent on the actual ambient temperature around here, but it, but it's doing something. Mm. And, and, you know, that heat is just a proxy for the fact that they're, you know, creating tiny explosions everywhere um, and spitting out that stuff. So I'm very conscious in my transport choices and try to, um, you know, I run a car company, but I cycle to work most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um so I do that, and, and I, you know, I live in an apartment, which is, you know, good and bad for, for a lot of th- good, good for a lot of reasons because it's very well insulated. But it's I've coming from living in a house with the backyard. I'm not composting, and I'm not growing any food, and that's a huge impact. So my level of, of particularly plastic waste um, is makes me really sad. And I think though the other the other thing for me personally is running a startup, not having any income for a long time uh, means that I'm very conscious of what I spend on food and means that I've just been better at making food from simpler ingredients mm. from scratch. I've had, the, I've been able to, it's not like I have time, like I'm spending all this time on the project, but it's, it's still like my time is absolutely my own and yeah. I can carve out more time and take that time to, you know, make my lunch, make my breakfast, do these things. Like I, you know, I work in a factory now and I take a lunch bag to work and I've never taken my lunch to work in 20 years of life. Um, but, but it's nice to be, to be doing that in a way that's both uh, for economic reasons, sure, but um, it's made me more conscious as well of, of packaging and waste. 
So what then what are your strategies around, you know, remaining mentally and physically uh well? Mm. Um obviously as 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 I'm aware of starting a business or being in business, especially mm. the creative business we're in, um, can be incredibly rewarding and exciting, but equally can be incredibly stressful as well. Yeah. Um what what do you do for yourself, your own Yeah. It's a it's well? a massive consideration and, and you know, one of the reasons I left my previous role, I was burnt out and I needed to quit to have the headspace and the mental capacity and and you know i was you know i was really i guess in hindsight quite depressed and and just wasn't and and almost feeling guilty that i wasn't doing the job that i could have been doing or knew that i i saw what a good job looked like and i wasn't able to achieve it and that kind of was a self-perpetuating sort of feeling so after how many years in the industry like 10 oh that was sort of i guess i've i've switched between I do, for whatever reason, I do work in film and TV for five years and then I use mm. go into interaction, digital design for about five years, go back to film, go back to interaction. Um, so it was five years in that role. Yeah, five-year itch. Yeah, something like that. So um, I don't know when it becomes a pattern. I'm sure four, four times is a pattern. Um, so that was very much – and, you know, my co-founder, Martine, um, she's a similar age to me and you know, we're in our 40s. Work-life balance is, you know, it's a phrase that's thrown around a lot, but it's like it's, we're very conscious of it. Um, and and that doesn't necessarily mean being strict on hours in either way. It just means that it feels needs to feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I make – I'm very conscious that I keep up regular exercise and as I get older that's more important to, to f- have that mental clarity. Um you know, I'm working in an environment, I'm switching between being in an office one day, being in a podcast recording another day, but then most of the other days being in a in a factory. Uh, yeah. So that's very, very physical. So that physical work in, a, in some ways I think helped me to put some boundaries because you just can't work for that long mm. in a factory. You, I found, you know, you find yourself sometimes sitting in an office and it's five o'clock and how productive are you between five and six at your desk, at your computer? I probably wasn't that. Or between nine and five. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That hey, you guys out there. Yeah, that beautiful eight till nine um, thing. So you know, you go in early, and you, you know, by four o'clock, uh, you're gone. So mm. going, well, that's it. Like, I just have to. I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to go home. I'm going to, you know, spend some time making food. I'm going to relax i'm going to you know and then probably have another shift later on in the night doing some you know doing some sketches of product design doing mm. you know writing emails cutting videos of on our blog or whatever but it's a but it's a conscious choice of these are the kind of being very aware and and keeping reminding ourselves that we are the ones in control it's easy to be led by the client or the customer yeah. all the time um and it's easy for us to, to follow that and go, no, 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 we just don't have to. We can slow down if we need to. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's better to work, you know. Burning yourself out does not, does not make you more productive. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I find similar, but I find that, like, if I could, I'd work 24-7. When I don't see it as work, I see it as um, when I'm pumped about something. Yeah. It's it, time is irrelevant, um, and it feels like there's not enough time to devote to these things. So absolutely, I'm not I'm not big on the whole idea of uh, life work balance because I just think your life is one. Yeah, and the more excited you are about what it is that you're doing in life, the less that division becomes. The the less the issues around. I mean, I know you need to recuperate, but also equally. Being excited about an idea or something gives you energy that exercise sometimes doesn't give you. you know? Exactly, and I think that I've always had that that challenge when you know, I've, I've, as being particularly when I've worked in you know sort of film, and you're often working on your own your own projects that you've created and you've driven. The idea of calling that work and having that word mean what what you're doing in that moment, which is totally your own invention and own reason, versus the other, you know going to your, you know, first job at the supermarket when you're 15, that's a totally different idea of, and definition of that word. Mm-hmm. And so I know what you mean. I, I am constantly just like wanting to – I wish there was more time. I wish I could get more stuff out of my brain. Mm-hmm. Our job as, you know, designers, creatives, whatever, is to get 
our imagination out to other people, whether yeah. to make it or get them excited about it or whatever. So trying to find the most efficient ways to do that and do that with, with clarity. And, yeah, I think there's a – whenever I'm looking off in the distance, we're on a hike, we're sitting on a couch, we're doing whatever, and my wife will ask me, you're thinking about jaunt, aren't you? And my answer is always yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think it's. Did you say it with that tone, or is it more? Kind of, oh, there's a lot of different tones. About it. <laughs> um, but there's. I think I've found that it's actually interesting for my mental capacity, mental fitness. There's so many aspects to think about. Like I need to. I've got a good two hours of work to do on my to-do list. It's just thinking about both a blue and a grey for for two upcoming cars that we're doing mm. for customers. Nice. Now, that's a really fun thing and so different to the writing these emails and doing this financial model or doing, you know, sanding back a panel. So many different tasks mm. that I feel like I'm using different, exercising different parts of my brain when I do it. Mm. There were so many questions I wanted to ask you. We're kind of running out of time now. One of, the, one of the end questions I always ask is, do you think you've designed your life? I definitely have designed my life now. Uh, I mean, you know, I can – obviously there's budget constraints like there is in every project, <laughs> um, so it would probably look a little bit different uh, if that wasn't the case. But I really set out to – I did set out from almost a, a blank slate um, – you know, and I'm very much a blank slate. I mean, I, I've I don't have any qualifications in this industry that I'm I'm working in now. So, started with a blank slate. What do I want to achieve? What's going to make me satisfied to work for the next ten years of my life? How can I help society in my own way? Knowing that my way, my skill, I've joked before and sort of joked, but talked with you know our with a you know HR director or whatever around. The only things I'm good at is learning stuff from the internet and getting people excited about stuff. And so how do I use that to do something for the world and make a little bit of an impact? Um, so, you know, the, the kind of tasks I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm kind of taking all the things that I wanted to do as hobbies um, and I think creating a business has is its own level of creativity um, as well as all the, the tasks within that. So um, I guess if, you know, running a, running a startup, creating a startup, being an entrepreneur in a, in a way is, it, it's harder to think of a way that isn't, is more designing your own life than, than that mm. because you are creating something that you know is going to occupy all of your brain power mm-hmm. and all of your time um, and, and lead you to a goal, even if that goal's still a little bit fuzzy, yeah, yeah. at least there's a purpose behind it. Fantastic answer. Um, how do people get hold of you? They can just search for Jaunt uh, on the internet and we will be the first result, I think. Uh, Jaunt Motors uh, on all social things. Um, I encourage you to the best way to keep in across what we're doing in these early stages um, is to sign up to our newsletter. I wish I had a better word for that, but basically if you enjoyed listening to me rant about all these little things into too much detail, that's what we send out every month. Very um, engaging. Thanks. So so business stuff that would be, you know, this month was around all these little details that we're doing with gauges and dials and dashboard design. Um, so business problems, trying to be very open and transparent around how we run a business and the problems that we're that we're facing. Um, but yeah, Jaw Motors uh, on all social channels. I forgot to ask you a question. Mm. What do you think the new Defender? Yeah, so this is very a very particular question for an audience that understands all the, the particular cars we're talking about. But yeah, a car that looked the same for 70 years um, always needed to be refreshed to be safe, modern, all these kinds of things. Mm. They released a new one and I I like it. I think it's still the car that I would buy, mm-hmm. but I don't like it as much as the old one. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you would if I was to write a checklist of my perfect car, apart from it's it doesn't have a pure electric version, its features are 
exactly what I use my Defender for. So everything, my Defender, I've upgraded a lot and I added this and I did this and I increased this and whatever. It's got all those things as standard. Mm. So they got it. They actually built the car that they should have, that they that I that I wanted them to build as a fan and as, yeah. as someone who really pushes the car um, and uses it as it was designed to be used. But however, I think like a lot of current Land Rover products and, and a lot of automotive industry, it's a bit over-designed and it's a bit – I feel that – and, and I've been thinking about this too much as I've been designing new and replacement parts to fit into these old cars so that they don't look like a new addition but they feel mm. part of it. And, and what I realised was that as soon as I started to go to be too referential in design, too evocative in the design – it was wrong. Mm. It needed to be it, – it, nothing is, you know, form follows function like a Defender is. And it needed to be functional first. Mm -hmm. And I think when they describe the a lot of elements on the new Defender and the way they describe it, I think, you know, they, I watched the launch, you know, I stayed up late and watched the launch of it over in um, Frankfurt or wherever it was launched – and the head of design there is talking about it. And, you know, this line evokes this feeling of this and the rugged elements and the square lines evoke this and it makes it. And it's like, don't tell me that it evokes toughness. Just tell me that it is tough. Mm. Like, that to me, that was like almost like stop being so – it's just the wrong – I think it's the wrong so spirit. Designy. It's so designy, <laughs> right? And that's okay to have those conversations. But to me, as a customer of this vehicle – Shut up. Like, yeah, like these are the philosophical things you think about as a designer and you have in, you know, when you're working on it. Like you, there is elements where should we put a curve here like this and should we shape this like this? But it shouldn't just be led from a referential point no. or a visual point when it is a functional vehicle. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and so that, that is my like very designer hang up yeah, about yeah, yeah. it. Um, but otherwise I think it's probably going to be. I guess they're going for the masses though, aren't they, with that new design? Yeah, and I don't, I don't, the design itself I don't think is wrong. It's pedestrian friendly. It's got some nice lines. But, but how they got to some of those decisions I, I question if it was, is that the most practical way, the best way to do that? Or is it just because you wanted to reference this special event in – you know, and that's mm. nice. It's nice to have nostalgia and heritage in design, but it shouldn't compromise the, the function. No. Love that as an ending. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave. Cheers. Thank you. Be sure to listen to our next episode as we have a very exciting guest joining us, a Grammy Award-winning Clio Hall of Fame designer and branding guru, Bruce Duckworth. If you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring, please don't forget to review or subscribe. <laughs>